you're listening to the Career Planning and Development Podcast. This is Episode 6, Workplace Rights. My name is Noah, and I'm a Career Development Faculty Member at Thompson Rivers University. I've recorded this podcast in Tecum Lipstech within Shkwetmahulu. This week, we're talking about workplace rights, and I've actually got a guest on today. I'm really excited about it. It's John O'Fee, who's a lawyer and professor here at Thompson Rivers University, and we're going to have a discussion about workplace rights and what it means for you. Hello. So today I've got John O'Fee here to talk about workplace rights. He's a lawyer and a professor at Thompson Rivers University. So John, to start out, why don't you tell me a little bit more about yourself and your expertise in employment law? Well, you know, I've been a business advisor in Camelot's for about 35 years in the legal practice. I've been at TRU for about 10 years in, in a more of an academic role. But in that role, I teach courses in commercial law, employment law, real estate transactions. And I teach a course in, in uh, real estate law or real estate law in, in, in the business school. And I teach real estate transactions in TRU's law school. So I, I, a lot of sort of business type advice. I, I teach employment law from the perspective of you being a manager and how to kind of run your business in compliance with uh, the, the laws as they exist and making sure that you don't end up on the wrong side of them. Okay. And when we're talking about these workplace rights, what do we actually mean by that? And why are we calling them rights? Fundamental, you know, a right means it's fundamental. And anytime you see the word right used in law, what we're saying is you can't be punished. You can't be fired. You can't be demoted. You can't be, you know, uh, uh, subject to any kind of, of, of difficulty, so to speak, for exercising a right. And, and so, right, you know, sometimes we have a license. For example, we have a driver's license. That means we have permission. We have permission to drive a car. We don't have a right to drive a car. And so when we talk about our human rights, our safety rights, our employment standards rights, uh, those are fundamental to the workplace, and and they they mean that that's again if you exercise a workplace right, not a license. You might have permission to wear jeans on Fridays. That's a license, okay? But these these are statutorily granted workplace rights, and, and that becomes much more fundamental if you like to the workplace relationship. And you ought not to worry about exercising them. And your employer ought to know. Uh, there's big consequences for for punishing an employee for exercising a right. Okay. And when we talk about rights, um. Often we talk about the human rights codes. So tell me more about what that means and why that's important. Well, the human rights code is what we call paramount legislation. It means it, it, it's above everything else. It belongs, you know, like if there's a conflict between human rights law and some other law in D.C., human rights carries the day. And so we, we say this, these things are fundamental. And every one of us that's human, and the last time I checked, I was, and your students likely are, uh, you have human rights, and these rights belong to you no matter what. I want to make it clear, it doesn't matter about your status in Canada. You don't have to be a Canadian citizen to have these rights. You don't have to be a permanent resident to have these rights. If you're a tourist in BC from some other country, you have these rights. You get these rights by virtue of being a human being in British Columbia, not by being British Columbian or Canadian. And so, like international students said, these rights apply to absolutely uh, everybody. And and when we talk about the Human Rights Code, you know, the, the things that we would typically expect to see, for example, see your, your race, your country of origin, your religion, your gender, uh, your gender identity, your sexual orientation, um, um, you know, religious clothing that might be a uh, part of that or religious observances that you might have. Um, those would be areas that we would see fundamentally protected within the workplace. Another classic one that we see in the workplace is you can't be discriminated against because of a medical condition, which would include an addiction. 
So let's say you go to your employer and say, I've got an addiction to this substance or alcohol or whatever it happens to be, and I need to seek treatment. Your employer has to accommodate that uh, to the point of undue hardship. So they, at the very least, have to give you some unpaid time off to seek treatment. Okay. They couldn't fire you for that. They say, hey, we don't want any drunks working here. Uh, well, that that actually would be a violation of your rights. And so if we have these these things that they can't discriminate against based on, what exactly does that look like? Like, What does that discrimination look like? Well, I mean, you know, it, it has to be an enumerated ground. So, you know, what we went through with the pandemic, a lot of people had an opinion, let's say, about the COVID vaccine. And, and, and uh, maybe it was a medically unsubstantiated opinion, but it was an opinion. They say, I have a right to my opinion, which you do, but it's not a protected workplace right to refuse vaccination, for example. Uh, if the job, you know, if you're in, in healthcare, if you work in a, in a senior's home, uh, you worked in a daycare setting, for example, uh, those were situations where the courts made it quite clear that in a in a pandemic, uh, we we can enforce like you're you're going to get an unpaid leave uh, while you remain unvaccinated in these circumstances, and that was considered, for example, be perfectly legal. So you don't have a right, you know, anything you feel like, oh, that's my right, therefore you can't do anything about it. It has to be a protected ground. The protected grounds are, you know, fundamentally uh, your your race, your religion, your sexual identity and orientation, um, your your family status of whether you have children or not, for example. Th- those are the kind of the core ones that we see protected in the workplace. And of course, medical as well. Your medical conditions. And are there any places where um, non-lawyers might say that sounds like it might be discrimination, but really legally it isn't? Well, it's interesting you say that because. I'm, I'm a director and panel chair for the Health Professions Review Board, and a woman was dropped by her doctor, and she says, the reason I was dropped was because I refused to get be vaccinated, and that's discrimination. I said, well, the doctor doesn't say that. The doctor says the reason you were dropped is because you're a very difficult patient, but uh, even if it was because you're not vaccinated, that would, doctor can drop you for that, that your opinion on vaccines is not a protected, uh, you know, a protected characteristic under the Human Rights Code, so it's kind of a moot point. Uh, and again, people think I'm being discriminated against because of this, when in fact, that's not, from a legal perspective at least, discrimination. Okay. And if somebody feels that they're being discriminated against by an employer, what are the what's the process they go through? Well, you know, there are some, maybe let's say you're at a workplace and someone makes a, a, a sexist joke or a, a, a racist joke that you found to be inappropriate might be just a matter of discussing that with the supervisor. The person apologizes, doesn't do it again. It doesn't mean the whole world has to explode every time somebody does something that maybe is a little off standard. And, and we all need to learn from these things. We need to learn to work with our coworkers respectfully. And you know, though, though it's not like every time you've got to go to the human rights tribunal and have this big blow up thing, right? The idea is a reconciliation. There's no human rights jail. Like we, we want people to learn and, and you know, realize that that we, we work better, our workplaces are better, more tolerant. Uh, if you've got a tolerant, happy workplace, you have less absenteeism, you have less employee turnover. There's lots of positive things that come from this. And it's generally, quite frankly, good for your bottom line uh, to have a tolerant, safe workplace. And and so, um, uh, but it, you know, if it was something significant, like you were denied housing because of, of your skin color or fired because of your religion, uh, then you could file a complaint with the Human Rights Commission and, and they would investigate and ultimately this could go to a hearing. And you don't pay anything for this. This is all done uh, through government agencies. And are there jobs or positions where there might be something that 
in another job would be considered discrimination, mm -hmm. but it's actually a requirement for completing this job. Yeah. Whenever we look at a job, I mean, obviously, you know, does the fire department discriminate against physically handicapped people? Well, yes, they do. That, that seems clear. If you were in a wheelchair and you said, I'd like to become a firefighter, they're going to politely tell you no. Uh, we have what's called a good faith, we need bona fide occupation requirement. In other words, in good faith, we need able-bodied people to be firefighters. They have to be able to go into a burning building and carry someone out on their shoulder, right? And and so uh, if you're blind, maybe flying airplanes isn't for you, right? Does it, do, do airlines discriminate against the blind? Yes, they do. Uh, they do that, but they have what we call a good faith or a bona fide occupation requirement after you'd have... You know, good vision, for example, to be a pilot, or if you're afraid of heights, maybe roofing isn't for you, right? And so you, they, they, there are jobs that they legitimately require certain, usually physical characteristics. It's pretty hard to say we can't accommodate, uh, you know, a Muslim person in this job, or, or we can't accommodate a, a gay person in this job, let's say, or, or a married or a single person in this job. That, that, that would be an unusual set of facts, I think, uh, where you couldn't, but usually something physical, there, there, there can be what we call bona fide occupational requirements that, that make it, uh, even though you are discriminating against you know, a certain protected uh, class of people, you're not doing this for, for reasons that aren't legitimately related to the job. Okay. So I've got sort of a two-part question here. First, tell me more about what those bona fide what those bona fide requirements look like on a job posting and then after that tell me a bit about what um what they can't ask about on a job posting or what they can't talk about on a job posting some aspect of physical fitness some some characteristic like your vision uh some some um you know obviously you know for me to have my job i have to be a member in good standing of the law society of british columbia and i am uh, you know, if you're going to hire an accountant, say, look, you have to be a member of the Institute of uh, uh, Certified Professional Accountants, or you have to be, you know, we're going to hire you to work at our clinic. You have to be a, a licensed doctor in British Columbia. Fair enough. I mean, th those those kind of technical requirements, because it's a legal requirement to practice law that you're a member of the Law Society or that you're a member of the College of Physicians and Surgeons if you're or a nurse or, you know, there, there's certain teachers, uh, you know, you have to be a member of the College of Teachers, for example. And so, there are professional requirements that would be completely legitimate uh, or, or something that's physical typically. Those would be the two main things that we would see in terms of a uh, job requirement. And of course, you know, we need someone who's experienced in this area or that area, and that's a and you don't have the experience. But you know, as long as you focus on what the job legitimately requires, uh, you're generally going to be fine when it comes to human rights. And what can't an employer ask for on a job posting? Well, you know, a, again. If you look at the grounds that are protected, you can't ask questions, and certainly not at the interview stage. So if I, I can't say, what's your religion? Uh, but once I hire you, I say, look, uh, we would like to know because we want to accommodate if you have you know, certain holy days that you need to attend, uh, uh, you know, uh, then we want to be able to work around that. Can you please tell us now? Well, once I've hired you, it's pretty hard to argue I've discriminated against you. And you're just now trying to accommodate your employees. So it's fine to ask once you hire them, but it's not fine to ask in an interview. Okay. And, and likewise, you know, maybe you've got a really fantastic in-house daycare that, that is really wonderful for your employees. And you say, hey, do you got any kids? If you say that in an interview, now I'm inquiring as to your family status as to whether or not you have children. Once I hire you, uh, I mean, that's different. When I got hired here at TRU, uh, you know, they didn't ask me if I had any kids. But when I got hired, they said, hey, you got any kids? We've got a dental plan for them. I say, darn tootin'. You know, I got two kids. I'll tell you all about them, right? Uh, because I'm hired. And, and so it's not discriminatory anymore. So sometimes it's the timing of the question 
And, and one of the classic ones for our international students, the only question, well, I mean, if you're applying to be a judge, you have to be a Canadian citizen or the armed forces. There's a few that you have to be a citizen, but in a general sense, and well over 99% of jobs, I would say that, that uh, the only question you can be asked as to your status in Canada is are, in other words, in the present tense, you legally, are you legally entitled to work in Canada? Not, are you a Canadian citizen? Are you a permanent resident? Are you here on a student visa? Are you legally able to work in Canada? Is the only because you can't you just can't get off a plane and show up in Canada and, and get a job, right? You have to have a social insurance number essentially. So, uh, and the the other uh, one you can legitimately ask some jobs like in a bar, or in a cannabis store, or a liquor store, you have to be at least nineteen. You can't say how old are you, but you can say this is a job that requires you to be at least nineteen. Are you at least nineteen? Okay, and that's the one and only time uh, you can ask about age. You can't say oh, are you close to retirement? Or, you know, how old are you? Those, those would be discriminatory questions. But if the job requires you to be at least 19, you can ask that question. Okay. It's not a question I get asked. And are there other red flags that that you hear about popping up in job postings or interviews like that? Well, you know, because it kind of it's the wild west of the internet, you know, back in the day, you know, I'm, going, I'm, I'm revealing my age, I suppose, but I used to look for jobs, you know, when I was a teenager or whatever, you'd, you'd open up the back of the newspaper in the help wanted section and you go through and see if there's something that suited you, right? That, that's how a lot of people used to look for jobs. The nice thing about that is newspapers have editors and they kind of knew the rules. Uh, now everything's posted online and you don't necessarily have those filters. So if you're looking for a waitress, well, you know, you're, you're expressing a pre preference for gender. It's just a food server. Uh handyman right or if you're looking for you know you, if you're implying there's a gender to to what you're looking for you're you could be in trouble with your job ad if you say we want someone who speaks fluent spanish uh when it's not really a legitimate job requirement and that's the other thing i'll sometimes see in a job posting oh you have to be able to lift 50 kilograms over your head well that would tend to screen out women right but do you really what about this what would it be about this job that requires you to lift 50 kilograms over your head would be the question let's say tru to be a professor at tru you have to lift 50 kilograms over your head well well why right that would be a completely bogus job requirement like why why would we have that and so that would tend to filter a woman as opposed to men uh, being faculty at tru so that would be discriminatory okay but if you know you're a roofer let's say let's go back to that and maybe a, a standard you know, bundle of shingles weighs 50 kilograms and you have to be able to climb up a ladder with 50 kilograms on one shoulder. Okay. You know, if, if you can show it's a legitimate job requirement, that's fine. Uh, but, but, you know, sometimes you see these, these bogus requirements that aren't really legitimate and they have the effect of screening people out because of their country of origin or, or other things. Right. And so that, that's sometimes you'll see that in a job posting event. And that, that, that is a mistake. If you feel this is filtering you out in some way, that's unjustified, then you could be, uh, you'd have a good case for discrimination. Okay. And so all of those come back to the, um, the human rights code, right? It, it's mm -hmm. all everything that's listed in there. And, and here's the other thing about the human rights code. We don't have to prove, I mean, I can't read someone's mind, you know, and one of the thinking exercises I go through in class is I pick a person of color and I say, let's say, you know, you see an apartment for rent and you call up and they, and they say, I'd like to come down and look at the apartment. And you show up and they see you and they go, oh, you're only here 10 minutes ago. We just rented it. And then you wonder, and, and then you go to one of your Caucasian friends and have them go look at the apartment and it's available. Okay. Now I can't read people's minds. I can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that, that uh, uh, this, this landlord's a racist, but I can show on the, it's more likely than unlikely. Like 
it's it's available for the white person. It's not available for the black person. You know, I've I've tilted the balance enough that I can demonstrate uh, a human rights abuse there, and that's all I have to do. Okay, uh, and and so it's not a matter of reading people's minds. That's impossible. Uh, we just have to show on the balance of probabilities that you're being treated differently because of a protected characteristic. So moving from those uh, rights over into the on-the-job rights, a big one that I talk about with students all the time is the right to refuse unsafe work. And can you elaborate what that is? Absolutely. You know, you're most dangerous to yourself and others early on in the job because you want to please your boss and you're not familiar with all the processes. And, and you know, it's, it's a sad truth that you're most likely to be killed or injured on the job in your first six months. And so uh, it's really important for people going into any kind of uh, job placement where there's a you know, risk of injury, that if it doesn't feel safe, don't do it. You have an absolute right. And it's not about you being correct. And that's, that's the key thing in this test. You don't have, maybe it is safe. Turns out it is safe and you were wrong. That's not the test. The test is, did you reasonably believe that it was unsafe? Okay. As long as you reasonably believe it's unsafe, you can't be punished for exercising a right. And that's your right to refuse unsafe work doesn't require you to prove it's unsafe. You just have to show that, you know, reasonably you thought that this was unsafe. Right. And there's cases, there's one smelter case where these very experienced smelter workers said, we're not doing that. And the engineer says, no, no, it's perfectly safe. And they said, eh, we've been in this, we've been at the smelter for 20 years, man. Uh, we, if you're wrong, you get punished and we're dead. Because uh, this is molten steel we're talking about right now, and and they just refused to do it, and they were initially disciplined because they were wrong, okay. And the arbitrator said, no, 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 uh, yeah, they were wrong, but their their reasons were completely rational, and they were they were justified in being as concerned as they were uh, at the time because they they were acting quite rationally. It's not like they were trying to you know work the rule or some sort of scam on their part. They were genuinely believed that their lives were at risk, and that's that's the test, okay. It's not being correct. Uh, so, so I think that's really important. Students ought not to hesitate. Uh, and, and, and if an employer makes you do something that's unsafe and, and WorkSafe BC finds about it, uh, you want to talk about fine. I, I go through some fine examples with my students, and these are not $100, $200 fines. They're $100,000, $200,000 fines. Uh, you know, someone's up on a roof without fall protection. It's a $75,000 fine. Nobody got hurt. You know? So, so these, these are big numbers, and employers know this. And, and they know full well that, that, that there's a process uh, that you can follow if a worker refuses to do something because they say it's unsafe. Maybe you're working for you know, a delivery uh, driving company in the brakes if your, your van aren't, aren't working properly, don't drive the van. Uh, you know, and, and they know, employers will put a little subtle pressure, they know full well the consequences of making you do work that's unsafe and how that might come back and bite them. So, so uh, you know, stand your ground on that one, absolutely. So talk more about that uh, because employers have that um, if you do something unsafe and you end up being injured, there's both the fine there. Um, and in Alberta, I'm not sure if it's the same here in British Columbia, but in Alberta, there's also ongoing um, problems because they're, the amount of money that they have to put forward towards uh, workers' compensation goes up. Absolutely. Workers' compensation is a self-funded little insurance plan, right? So just like you and I, if you and I have, you know, let's say we're born on the same day, we've got our driver's license on the same day, and we drive identical cars, uh, our insurance is probably going to be the same. But if you've had five accidents and I haven't had any, your insurance is higher than mine, okay? Because, you know, you've got a bad claims history. So your claims history is a big factor in terms of how much you pay in workers' compensation premiums, absolutely. And so it's in the employer's interest to keep their claims history good and thereby keep their insurance premiums low. 
well, less less high. They're, they're never low. So that really shows how important it is to to bring up when you see something unsafe at work. And one of your other workplace rights is to point out safety problems. Once you have more than 20 employees at a workplace, by law, they're required to have a joint health and safety committee. And that's management and a union if there is one or, or, or uh, some worker representatives who get together and we talk about safety. And if there is a workplace incident, well, what could we learn from that? What can we do better? If there's maintenance issues or this, this machine is breaking down or you know this railing is coming loose or whatever the situation might be in a given circumstance, you get you have a right to raise those concerns. And you can't say, oh, you know, John's always complaining about safety around here. We need to get rid of him. Uh, no, that is a workplace right. You can't be fired, punished, demoted, et cetera, for exercising a right. What other on-the-job rights should employees know about? Well, I mean, we've got our human rights. We've got our our, our uh, workplace safety rights. Uh, and and the, the third workplace safety right of note, I should add, is is when you're working with something dangerous like chemicals, or you're entitled to what's called WIMIS training, which is work, hazard, work hazardous material information system training. And a lot of, uh, I, when I go and teach this in my class, a lot of my students have had this because maybe they're working around cleaning agents and solvents or whatever it is. And you have to have training uh, so that you know what it is you're working with, how to properly handle it, et cetera. And if you're not properly trained, don't do the work. It's unsafe until you get your training. You see them getting it, right? So that's one of, those are the three core worker rights from a safety standpoint. And of course, we all have rights pursuant to the Employment Standards Act. Uh, you have a right to overtime. You have a right to vacation time. You have a right to vacation pay. Uh, you have what we call statutory leave. So uh, you have sickness leave. You have leave to care for, for a relative if, if they're sick, uh, child care obligations, uh, bereavement leave. And again, these are workplace rights that are given to you by statute, in this case, the Employment Standards Act. Statutory holiday pay, there's another one. And what about things like uh, workplace harassment? What does that look like in the workplace? Well, harassment kind of falls under two things. It could be falling under human rights if it's uh, sexual harassment or you know, harassment based on, on, say, your religion or people making fun of your accent or, you know, so it could be some subtle racism or something that, that's involved in this. So it kind of could be could be human rights. It's also one of your safety rights. So if you're, you know, being coerced or threatened or, you know, shoved around a bit or roughed up at work, let's say, it could also fall into the, to, to the realm of safety. And so it could be a combination of both. And, and in both cases, of course, you can raise this. Uh, at, uh, and, and an employer has an obligation to treat harassment complaints seriously, or they, again, find themselves on the business end of a human rights complaint. And, and that creates its own set of problems. And is it similar to with larger employees or employers around the safety requirements that they have to have somebody that you can report to if they're a larger employer? Yeah, again, once you have more than 20 employees, you must have a joint health and safety committee. It's a legal requirement. Uh, TRU has one and, and any, you know, I've talked to students who are working at say Superstore or something like that. And yeah, they, they've got one because there's more than 20 people working there. One, if you have less than 20 people, you're allowed to have one, but it's not a legal requirement, but you can still raise safety concerns. You have a right essentially to raise safety concerns with management. Uh, typically in a large organization, you do it through the Joint Health and Safety Committee. Uh, in, a, in a small organization, you do it directly okay. with your supervisor. Um, what about things like privacy? We do a lot of stuff electronically now. Um, what privacy rights do uh, employees have? Well, you know, if, if you wanted to steal my identity and empty out my bank account, a good place to start would be TRU. TRU knows my birth date. They know my social insurance number. They they know my bank and my bank account number because they hopefully are going to pay me yet again. Uh, and, and so, yeah, of course, uh, that 
that's they've got a, a very high standard of care to me in terms of the information that they have about myself and my family. And, and if that information gets out, uh, TRU is going to be responsible for that. And for the damages that I suffer, we call that strict liability uh, because, you know, failure is not an option. Okay. Like you, you can't fail. And if you do fail, you're going to be responsible for the consequences of that. And so, yeah, we all have privacy rights uh, and you don't have to suffer damages to file a, a privacy complaint. It could be, you know, and I'll, I'll just pick on myself so that I don't want to sort of uh, with want to do it with students. So I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, but, but let's say, you know, I have counseling for depression or, you know, some, some mental health challenge, and maybe that's embarrassing to me, or, or maybe, you know, uh, you, you're, you're dealing with, with uh, an addictions issue and, and you're availing yourself of some employee assistance program uh, that can't get out to other employees. Right. They're, and when I teach, I'm teaching future human resource professionals say, no, you can't be the gossip. You you keep a lot of secrets in this organization. And if you start blabbing about people's personal affairs, there can be fines and punishment, even if there's no sort of quantitative damages, right? Like, like the fact that somebody knows I'm in counseling, let's say for depression, doesn't really affect my wages. It doesn't affect me economically. Uh, but uh, the, the privacy commissioner can issue significant mm -hmm. fines for that because that, that's not information that should be getting out. Uh, and so... Yeah, I mean, there's there could be obvious financial harm if, if you're banking information, et cetera. People could could you know do all kinds of terrible things. But but uh, yeah, you're going to definitely uh, your employer knows a lot about you. Uh, they know a lot about your health. They probably know what prescriptions you're on. They, if, if you're availing yourself of any employee supports that that might exist at your workplace, these are all things that are required to be kept confidential. And if you're in that role where you start blabbing confidential information, that's generally speaking just cause to fire you. And when, when I teach my employment law class, I, you know, someone's been with this organization over 30 years, but they're, you know, they're, they're the gossip and, and don't tell anyone, but, you know, and, and they would start talking about uh, a, a particular employee and their problems. And that, that got back to management. And this person was fired for in a union setting for yeah. just cause, because we take that very seriously. So it'll a get you fired if you're kind of the gossip as it were, because if you have access to confidential information, you know, confidence, and confidential uh, come from the same word for the same reason. If someone can't keep things confidential, you don't have any confidence in them, right? And so uh, if I don't have confidence in you, then I, then I ought to get rid of you. And, and that can be just cause to fire you. So yeah, it, it's really okay. an important thing. And these days with a lot of people working from home or a lot of people doing uh, work where it's bring your own device, um, what rights do employees have around um, safety and security and privacy regarding um, regarding that? Well, right now I'm on a workplace computer. I'm in my office. Um, uh, now I'm allowed, uh, as a faculty member, I can go on the internet and look at my Gmail, my personal stuff. If I want to check my social media feed for some reason or other, I don't tend to do that work, but every now and then I might, if I get a, a, a message on Facebook or something, I might go look at it. Um, uh, and I'm allowed to do that. Okay, and and as a consequence of that, uh, uh, I have some expectation of privacy on my workplace computer because my employer permits that. But if the if the rule at the workplace is this is a workplace computer, and and uh, you only do work on this, and under no circumstances should you be you know going on Amazon or whatever you know surfing surfing social media feeds, going on personal emails. This is for work and for work only. Uh, and if that's the workplace rule, that's fine because it turns out everyone brings a computer with them to work now. Okay. We all have one. And so a lot of organizations are going to this model and say, well, you have a computer, 
go ahead and use our Wi-Fi. Do all your personal stuff on your personal computer. And that way, it's, it's not that they cared that you checked your Gmail on your lunch break. It's more uh, the malware and the ransomware and you know, all of our obligations to protect your privacy of your personal financial information. All that crap comes through your social media feeds and your all these kind of you know junk emails and stuff that you're you're clicking on, and so we don't want you to do that here. We don't want you to do that on 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 our workplace computer. We have enough problems, and if you, if your phone crashes, that's your problem, right? And, and if our computer system crashes, that's our problem. And so you're seeing more and more organizations going, your work computer is work and work only. And if that's the rule at work, then you have no expectation of privacy respecting your workplace computer. Okay. So if the rule of work is under no circumstances, do you do personal business on a work computer, go ahead and use our Wi-Fi, use your, use your personal device for that. Then of course you have an expectation of privacy on this, but not on your workplace computer. But if they say, yeah, we don't care, you know, you're on your lunch break or whatever, and you feel the need to uh, check some social media feed or whatever, then I do have some expectation with respect to that on my workplace computer. Now, you touched a little bit about rights around pay. Could you talk more, especially about the the overtime one? Well, you know, I've heard students, oh, they pay $20 an hour, but they don't pay overtime. I said, yeah, they pay overtime, $30 an hour, time and a half. Uh, and and uh, you, all you have to do is complain. It's passive enforcement. Like, unlike safety, uh, you know, they, they, they have people, um, uh, you know, people seek you out, uh, you know, they, they, in, in safety. They have space safety inspectors just show up, right? Uh, employment standards, you got to complain, uh, but uh, there's a ton of decisions on unpaid overtime uh, where, where you know, once you work more than eight hours in a day or 40 hours in a week, you get overtime. That's that's that. And it's not debatable. And they say, yeah, but we pay you more than minimum wage, so we don't pay overtime. No, that's not how the statute works. So, so yeah, I, I, I would track it meticulously. Maybe you plan to leave there in a few months anyways, and they just follow you. The director of employment standards will chase that for free, give you all the money. Uh, that's what I would tell you to do. And is there a is there a time after which that happens, or if you just started a job? You've got it. You've got six months from after you leave the employment mm-hmm. to do it. You could do it while you work there, and they can't punish you for doing that. Uh, but it creates a frosty relationship, and I'm not naive about it. And I'd say, okay, yes, you're right. But then this, this kind of you know creates a bit of tension. If you just track it, you've got up to six months from when you leave uh, to to claim it. And what about if an employer says, oh, well, you get overtime pay after you've been here for five months or 10 months? Are they allowed to do that? You get overtime pay after you've been there for eight hours. You know, if on your very first shift, you work nine hours, you get an hour of overtime. And that brings me to another one that uh, that we've talked about before is the unpaid training shifts. Yeah, no such thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is such a thing in, in reality, but there's no such thing in law. And there's no such thing as an unpaid, there's nothing in the Employment Standards Act that says, oh yeah, you don't have to pay while they're training. You do, you have to pay whatever. You might have a training wage that is, it still has to be at least minimum wage, but you might say, while you're in training, we're only going to pay you $16 an hour. And then once you finish your training, your pay jumps to $20 an hour. There's nothing wrong with that, but you have to pay at least minimum wage for training sessions. And is there anything that an employer can say, oh, well, you have to pay for uniforms. You have to pay for these things. No. So tell me about that. The short answer is, is, is generally speaking, no. The only exception to that is uh, steel-toed boots. You have to meet, you may have a job in construction where you have to bring your own boots, but they have to provide the hard hat and the safety vest and all the other stuff. Uh, but but you've got to provide your own boots. Um, they're not crazy, but get some, you know, it's probably a $100, $150 problem, but, but that's, 
that's about it. Um, they don't have to provide you with, with, with you know, shoes. You want, if you were on your feet, I'll, you want a good pair of boots. Just spend, spend more than that. Get, get some good boots. You won't regret it. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, no, in a general sense, no, you don't have to buy uniforms. You don't have to. Uh, uh, now there could be a dress code where, where, for example, you're, you're in an office setting and they, they say you have to wear a jacket and a tie. And if you don't have one, you might have to, you know, require something, but that's what value village is for. So that's where my kids go. That's where I went for very, very, very long. Uh, what other workplace rights issues have you been hearing about in the last couple of years? I, I've certainly seen, you know, employers will imply to international students that somehow if they complain, that will affect their, their, their immigration status in Canada or delay them getting permanent residence or something like that. That is, of course, complete nonsense. Uh, if you exercise your human rights, your safety rights or your employment standard rights as an international student, that's zero. And I want to emphasize zero bearing on your status in Canada. It has absolutely no effect on your immigration status, whether or not you get permanent residency status, et cetera. And so don't hesitate to exercise your rights. Well, thank you, John. Uh, is there anything else you want to finish off on here? No, I, I think we've covered something. And I'm always happy to have a chat with any student if, if you think you're taking advantage of. The only other thing, you know, I've seen the odd student fall for some of these scams where they get called about their, oh, you know, we're from the visa office and, you're, and your, your student visa status has been compromised or something like that. Uh, these are, of course, nonsense. And, and, and the, the key things I would just tell my international students in particular, the police are never on their way. If someone says the police are on the way, you know they're lying. You know this is a scam. They, unless you're Tim Hortons, they're not on their way. Okay. Uh, the second thing is the government never needs you to do anything today. Anytime the government contacts you and says this has to happen today, you're being scammed. The government never needs you to do anything today. Never you got at least a week, probably two, maybe a month, okay? You never have to do something today. If the government were to call you, they, A, they're probably never going to call you. But B, if they did, you don't have to. If, if it's got to be done right now, if it's urgent, it's a lie, you're being scammed. And the third thing is, if you can't walk into a credit union or bank and pay this directly to the government, it's a scam, okay? There's under no, there is no circumstance in which the government wants to be paid in gift cards, or you go down to Western Union with a wire transfer, or you know someone's going to come and pick up your cash, or hey, there's there's that's absolutely dead on. It's going to be a scam if you can't walk into the local CIBC or credit union or RBC and literally go to the clerk and say, "I need to pay the Ministry of whatever five hundred dollars," and they all stamp it that yes, you paid this ministry here. If you can't do that, it's a lie. You're being scammed. Uh, and, and so just ask yourself those three simple questions. And if any one of those isn't true, like if they say, oh, you got, no, you got to go right now. And we need Apple gift cards and shut up. It's a scam. Okay. There's, there's no situation where that's not true. And, and if you're not sure, come see me. I'll tell you, I'll look you dead in the eye and tell you it's a scam. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I think that's going to be really helpful for a lot of the uh, people here today. Um, thank you again for joining me and for talking about uh, this really important topic, especially for those new to the Canadian labor market. It's been my pleasure. And, and uh, you know, one of my goals as someone who's approaching retirement the next few years is I need more Canadians paying into the system. So I'm going to collect a pension, right? So I have my own selfish motives for making sure we get lots of new Canadians and people decide they want to stay here. And if uh, they're being treated fairly and nicely, that's that's part of my master plan. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Hey, mama, it's been a while, but I think I finally see. Thanks for listening. This has been Noah Arney with the Career Planning and Development Podcast. 
For more information or to contact me, go to careertheory.trubox.ca. This podcast is hosted by Thompson Rivers University and is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial share-alike license. Music for this podcast is A Life I Believe by John Worthy and the Benz. Until next time, I wish you well. Everybody says I should be